We've done AMAs in the past with people like Perry Chen, the founder of Kickstarter, and Elizabeth Cutler, the founder of SoulCycle, and Neil Blumenthal, the founder of Warby Parker. Um, and today, really, really excited to have Justin Can, who is the co-founder of Twitch and also the co-founder of Justin TV, which um, for me is really, I, I think at the point when I heard about Justin TV was probably the first point where I started to think about there being a social internet. Um, when I was reading about Justin again in prep for this event, I was like tickled in just reading some of the articles written about Justin TV back in like 2007, 2008. Um, you know, he's referred to as host of having a web life cast, which is before, you know, the term vlog existed, before a lot of terms that have become familiar here. Um, and Justin was really influential in helping to, I think, make personal life casting um, and the entire kind of whole YouTube world um, uh, the, the, the huge thing that it is today. Um, and then after that, he split off to start Twitch, which is just become the massive uh, player in online streaming. And so I'm excited to have him here today. Justin is gonna be interviewed by Amanda Davis, who is Associate Director of Gaming at Gray Agency, which is one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. Um, and Amanda specializes in looking at um, the way that gaming uh, and users interact with one another. Um, and how brands interact with the platform. So excited to have you guys here. The format, um, Amanda's gonna loosen Justin up with some questions for about 10 to 15 minutes that she's prepared to kind of get into his background a little bit, um, touch on where he's come from, what his story is, and then we'll open up to your questions. We got, I think, over 50 questions in advance, um, but if you didn't submit a question yet, you can do so here in the chat. Just click on the chat button at the bottom of the browser and drop them right in. Um, and Amanda will get to those um, in time. You can put your name or you can list yourself as anonymous, whatever you prefer. Um, but excited to have you here today. Um, if this is your first time checking out a Betaworks event, check out the rest of our calendar. Um, on Thursdays, we do VC Voices event and we've got Matt Kaliski, um, who's from Rubicon. Um, on Friday this week, we're hosting a conference actually that's part of our render conference series that's focused around fighting disinformation called Reclaiming Trust. Um, a full day of th three and a half hours of programming should be awesome. And then our next Ask Me Anything live event is next Tuesday with Biz Stone, the co-founder of Twitter and Medium. So I'm going to turn it over to Amanda and Justin. Justin, thanks so much for being here today. And uh, let's get to it. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, Justin, for being here. Although you're just at home, which I appreciate you buzzing into us. Um, it's nice to meet you. We're all excited to be here. And also thank you to everybody that submitted questions ahead of time. I have a lot of them here, which I'll run through. But again, like Ben said, go ahead and throw any in the Q&A as they come up and we'll, we'll bop around a little. Um, Justin, I know you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur. You've had your hands in many innovative launches over the past decade, Twitch, Atrium, now Goat Capital. Let's, let's take it back. Your very first idea that became an entrepreneurial initiative, was that Justin TV or did you have a, a side project before that? No, I had a company before that actually. Well, the very first entrepreneurial idea I ever, I ever had was this uh, software product that we released that was kind of like shareware in, it's supposed to have been like in the nine, late nineties, early to like two, maybe 2000. But uh, some friends that I'm, made this program that was a gravity simulator program. So it would like simulate planetary gravity of, you know, you'd set up like a solar system or whatever, and then it would simulate the, the orbits of these planets. It wasn't really useful for anything. It was yeah, maybe like a scientific teaching tool, 
but we built it for fun and then we're like, Hey, maybe we could sell this as shareware, but we never, we never did. So that was my first pseudo entrepreneurial activity. And then, uh, when I was a college in colleges, I was a senior at, at Yale and, uh, started my first real company, which was a web calendar, kind of like Google calendar, but there was no Google calendar at the time. And that was called Kiko. We started it in 2004 and then got into the very first batch of Y Combinator startups in 2005. And that's kind of how I got my start in startups. Um, the company ultimately was not very successful. We ended up doing a fire sale on eBay after several botched acquisition attempts. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of got our feet wet with entrepreneurship. And then after that, that's how we started Justin TV. And you've had a lot going on since then. Um, cool. A lot of the questions that we got um, really revolve around, you know, where you started with Justin TV and Twitch. And, and did you know that it would be such a, a huge platform and such a huge part of, of, of society and social sharing when you started it? Or did that kind of evolve as you got a little bit more um, into, the, into the company? Uh, like, yeah, we knew it exactly would play out this way. I mean, I remember watching a, uh, a Charlie Rose interview with the guys from MySpace in like 2009 or eight or something like that. And they were like, we planned this whole thing. We knew exactly how it was going to go. We wrote down like a you know, big document in the beginning and we knew all the features it was going to have. And then that was MySpace. This was when MySpace was still like a thing. And I thought that was like total bullshit. Like we definitely did not know anything about what would happen with Justin TV and then, and then Twitch, like Justin TV was interesting because it was kind of preceded this, you know, the social sharing revolution, right? There's Twitter was around. We, we launched this, we thought of it in 2006 and launched it in 2007. It was like a live 24 stream, seven stream from my perspective. It's kind of like a really long shitty blog. <laughs> and, uh, but there was no Twitter really. There was no Instagram. Facebook was, you know, not, it was, for college students, but it wasn't really like where people were broadcasting information. It wasn't that much like, you know, there weren't like social media influencer stars or anything. So, but I'd always had this idea that, you know, people are interested in other people. And if you just gave them a vulnerable view into their lives, like they'd be attracted to that or some set of people would be. So Justin to TV was this idea that like we could create a show and then eventually multiple shows around just people and showing this, like what their real life was like kind of like a new form of reality TV. So we had to invent all this technology to do it. We created this live streaming system and it was actually pretty technically complex. There was no iPhone at the time. And then we launched it, um, but that was it. We didn't know how it would play out. Um, turns out watching someone 24 seven is incredibly boring. People don't want to do it. The smart thing to do would have been create something more like Snapchat stories or you know, not Instagram stories where you get like little blips into the highlights of people's day. Um, and uh, eventually, obviously, someone someone did that, but we didn't think of that at the time. So we kind of turned it into something more like YouTube Live, where it's just a platform for anyone to to stream anything they wanted. And then, you know, we worked on that for a couple of years, and eventually, it became Twitch. It's really interesting to hear you frame it that way because a, a lot of the conversation around Twitch and around streaming right now is almost this reverting back to you know IRL streaming, like the all of the things that you guys pioneered with Justin TV. Do you think that, you know, that experience and that kind of appetite for people's day-to-day, -day, you have, you know, your chat streams and a little bit of your, you're just riding along with someone's day-to-day -day activities is gaining in popularity. Do you think that it was, it was a polar swing or do you think there was always that kind of want to, you know, be, be in someone's, you know, intimate details of their day? 
I think that is like a human need or like desire, right? Not for everybody, but for some people. I don't think that IRL streaming on its own is probably going to be the same size as YouTube or anything like that. You know, it's it's a category, like it's almost like one vertical of video that people want to watch. And um, I think, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for that, but just people are spending more and more time on the internet on their you know laptops or on their, on their phones. Now, you know, in the intervening time between when we started Justin TV and now, everybody has a phone, you know, the smartphone that didn't, that wasn't the case before. And so there's just more opportunity for people to consume the content. And, you know, I do think there's, it's almost like um, my, my co-founder Emmett, who's still the CEO of Twitch. He, he once said that Twitch was like methadone for human connection. You know, it's, it's like a, it, it is like a simulation of human connection. It's not exactly as great as the real thing in a lot of ways, but um, you know, it, it's something that people really like uh, as a substitute or a compliment and so I, I think IRL streaming is kind of like the same thing, you know? Yeah. Gives you like a little dopamine, a little connection, especially yeah. quarantine. Too. Kind of like talk radio, you know, with talk radio that preceded in the internet, right? People, you get to know this person, you're spending a lot of time with them. Right? It's a radio host or whatever. And um, maybe they're talking about the news or having guests or whatever, but it's just a way to spend a lot of time, time around with someone. And as human beings, we, we really crave that. And then, you know, IRL streaming is kind of like that as well. And I think podcasting now is like a similar trend, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with streaming, I mean, you mentioned it, obviously, I, IRL being a vertical there. There were also a lot of questions around how is streaming going to support new avenues, you know, education, work from home, kind of connective offices, concerts. It It's tough to, to, I know, like identify exactly where that goes, but, you know, do you have like kind of a broad perspective of how streaming can can support all of these different things? Or do you think there are places it will, you know, find more use and value? Um, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, kind of cool use cases, uh, but I don't know which ones are going to become like good businesses or not. You know, so I saw one that was like people setting up a, Android tablet that was that would show your coworkers, right? It was like a live, it's like a almost like a Facebook portal for work, I mm-hmm. guess. And I thought that kind of kind of was cool. Um, where you know, in this, you know, when everyone's remote, it's a way to like really feel connected to your your uh, coworkers and and employees or whatever. Um, so that was like one thing that I thought was was kind of interesting. And then there was, you know, there's everything from like more niche verticals of, of video where people are, you know, I saw one where someone was streaming themselves studying. It's like saying as a, I guess, way to make you study, you know, you're like, watch this person study. Um, and then people obviously have been doing music. Music is a category that's growing really well on Twitch. People have been trying to do that. They've been trying to do live streaming fitness for a long time. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of the devil's in the details of like how exactly the product works and how they attract the, content creators and um like is this a activity or behavior that's like easy enough for people to engage in like in a bite-sized way i think all of those are kind of factors that play into it mm-hmm. another one that seems popular is like people streaming movies together and tv so like uh kind of co-watching i, I think amazon just added that as a feature right but other people are, are working on that as well which is like theoretically in response to being quarantined and all of these new problems that have come up this year. So I'm, I, I can see that being a, a huge vertical for, for Twitch moving forward. Um, a question from the audience, where did the name Twitch come from? Uh, my co-founder Emmett thought of it. He it came from the idea of like fast Twitch muscles, you know, like um, the type of mu- muscle fiber that you need to make, um, have quick reflexive response. 
And he thought that was like, you know, kind of analogous to like high APM um, actions per minute uh, players, you know, that, that were uh, streaming StarCraft, uh, which is his favorite game. So we actually were going to call it Zarth in the beginning, like X-A-R-T-H. And, and, but everybody kind of hated that name. That, that was like the best thing that people could think of. And then, you know, a couple of days before, he was like, no, it's going to be called Twitch. And so, you know, we were, we were like, okay, that's great. The only problem was Twitch. We didn't couldn't get Twitch.com. We only got to get Twitch.tv. And I'd spent the last, you know, whatever years explaining .tv as like a domain name. And so the prospect of having it be Twitch.tv was kind of terrifying. All right, thank you. Um, and you were also talking a second ago about, you know, how, how Twitch treats its, not only the content creators on its site, but also the kind of features and, and use cases that you roll out there. Um, one of the questions from Jessica was, how have different cultures and competitive apps influenced the design and, and roadmap and functionality for Twitch along the way? You know, I, I'm probably not the expert to speak on that because I haven't worked at the company in six years, right? So um, really before that, I was just, a, you know, like when we sold it, I, I was didn't continue. So, you know, I haven't had anything to do with the product in a long, long ass time. So um, in the beginning, it was really, I mean, obviously this was like a big the gaming video itself was something that was really coming over from Asia where like there'd be a lot of competitions in Asia and people would stream, you know, not even stream at first, but they would like, take videos and upload them to YouTube. And so there was a lot of inspiration there. Like, you know, um, really was, you know, the gaming as a category wasn't something that we invented. It was just something that we looked at and saw, and then, um, you know, kind of built, built from there. A lot of the features themselves came from talking to the members of the community and seeing like, what do you want? Like as a broadcaster, like, what do you want? You know, it always, always boils down. And I think this is true of all social media apps. And sites it's like it boils down to creators really want two things you know they want more love and then they want to be paid uh, so they can make money in doing it and those are you know almost everything factors into like one of those two categories yeah which seems like it it probably was the different differentiation between you know youtube live you have facebook gaming all these other places it seems like twitch is is the the platform that kind of maybe cared a little bit the most about their content creators and the users on the site. So that's that makes sense. Cool to hear. Um, switching gears a little bit. Many have asked, and I'll just summarize it, a little bit more about your experience and, and journey with Atrium and you know the ups and downs. What would you do differently? All of the questions. Can can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Sure. So I started this company called Atrium a couple of years ago. It was a uh, kind of like a full stack corporate law firm that we're trying to you know, revolutionized with technology, kind of like what Compass uh, has done in the real estate, real estate space. There were a lot, of, a lot of problems, like TLDR raised a lot of money, $75 million. And then at the beginning of this year, decided to shut down the company and return the capital to investors. It really wasn't working in the venture scale way. So, um, I mean, there were tons of lessons, both on the industry side, but then also on the personal side. I think the personal ones are probably more interesting. So I'll just, you know, kind of go through those. Um, you know, I really started the company because I wanted to have a big company. And I was like, I, I'm gonna, this is a big idea that can support a big company. But it wasn't very passion driven. It was more like, this is just something that could be big. And so it was very mercenary in a lot of ways. And I think that looking back, that was like a, not a great way to start a company. You know, you, it's much better and you can find much more intrinsic motivation when it's something where, you know, it's, it's something you care deeply about. And, are, um, and so I think that that was a big um 
that was a big learning. And then I think that one of the things I really learned from that experience was, you know, when we started the company, things were going great at first and, you know, I was growing the customers and hiring people and raised, raised a lot of money. And then somewhere along the way, it got really stressful. And I think it got stressful because it was, uh, you know, we grew the team really quickly. So there was, you know, 30 people in the first six months and none of them had ever worked together before. And I was probably, um, putting a lot of pressure on the, the team in, a, in an unhealthy way, you know, cause I had this big expectation for what things would become. But then I realized like one day I kind of woke up and I was like, I'm just as stressed as I ever was when I was starting, you know, a new founder starting out and kind of objectively, if this company doesn't work out, things are going to be fine uh, for me. And so why am I so stressed? And, you know, it started this realization that, you know, no matter what your extrinsic circumstances are, you can always kind of create suffering for yourself. And so I started at mostly out of necessity at first, trying to figure out ways to like mitigate my own suffering. And so, you know, what that looked like was I started trying to meditate. I was like, okay, I need to calm the fuck down. So I'm going to like try to meditate. And I just started with headspace and I was like trying to meditate two minutes a day, right. Or whatever. And, you know, even two minutes, I couldn't sit still. And then I was like, okay, I built up a little bit of that muscle and started meditating five minutes and then 10 minutes. And uh, then I started doing a transcendental meditation. And then, you know, I was meditating for a month and then two months and six months. And I just realized like, oh, I'm so much calmer and able to be more resilient with what's going on and happening in my day. Another example is you know, I started doing gratitude journal, like a five minute gratitude journal every morning. And after a week, I was like, oh, I'm a lot more grateful for like what I have in my current present moment. And anyways, I built up a bunch of things like that. And through the course of this very stressful experience that actually didn't work out in the end, the start that didn't work out, I took a lot of personal lessons away from it to improve my own satisfaction and wellness and peace with what is happening in the world, um, which I don't think I would have gotten to if I hadn't gotten this like kind of pretty terrible, been in this tough situation. Mm -hmm. That's like, yeah, it's very refreshing to hear about, you know, the focus and, and prioritization of, you know, fulfillment and mindfulness and where does that come from? And actually one of the questions that we got was, you know, was that always like your approach to, you know, your professional life or it sounds like maybe this was the moment <laughs> was, when things shifted? It was never, it was, yeah, it was never my approach to my professional life, right? I'd spent the first, from when I was 20 or whatever, when I first started my first company to when I was in my mid thirties, right? I'm in my late thirties now. Um, uh, just always beating myself up over like, I need to do better. I want things should be a different way. I should have like started a more successful company. I should have not sold. We shouldn't have sold it. We should have, you know, X, Y, and Z things. And even after becoming successful, there was always like this need to want uh, like a grasping for more. Right. Because you're, you know, everything is relative, right. And your frame of reference is relative. So when I was starting off, I was like, if I just make a million dollars in this industry, I'll be like, I'll be set. You know, that'd be amazing. And then blew through that and then eventually made a lot more. And I was like still dissatisfied. And I was still like, oh man, I want to be more successful. And I started a billion dollar company, but I got friends who started Airbnb or Dropbox or whatever, right? And so uh, it never ends. And so for me, it took like really hitting a rock bottom point to start realizing like maybe I need to shift my mindset. Maybe there's something else that, out there that's more important than extrinsic success. Yeah, you can't keep moving the uh, moving the goalpost. Doesn't really work out well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that makes sense. I'm gonna jump over to some questions from the audience. Annalisa talking about perspective. 
asked, do you still think about emerging trends in the streaming space from, you know, your original perspective, Justin TV, founder of Twitch, or did that kind of focus change after you left the company and kind of see it from a different angle? Um, I don't know that I really understand what this question means. Um, I guess, you know, Do you get to look yeah, at the streaming space differently since you're not as as closely involved? And do you think that that's changed? I, mean, I think I, I, I think before I probably looked at it a lot more, and now I like don't care that much. <laughs> like people expect me to so, be yeah. like, oh, you're into gaming and like into streaming, but like I get pitched like gaming and streaming stuff all the time, but like I don't really care that much about gaming or streaming. Um, so it's it's I, a different focus. <laughs> yeah, I'm more interested in like digital health companies, wellness companies, carbon decarbonization companies. And then like even SaaS startups sometimes, like things that are maybe solving problems that I had at startups. Um, so yeah, maybe it's like, I'm less interested. Like, so I think about it less. It's not that there's not opportunities there. It's just that I don't care. <laughs> that yeah. That's a good answer. Um, that actually segues into the next question from the audience. What do you think the role of technology and, and I think di digital, plays in human happiness. Are you excited about anything coming up in you know, the digital experience space to aid this? Um, no, that's a great question. Yeah. That you have a, a great podcast that we all need to listen to that perhaps talks about this a little bit. Yeah, um, so I started a podcast, I launched it today. Uh, it's called The Quest. It's called The Quest because it's kind of my, you know, about the journey that people take through life, uh, trying to find meaning and happiness. And talked to a lot of my friends who have been successful in many ways, but also have struggled, you know, and I think that one of the things that's really important to me is to create an example of someone who's like externally people are like, Oh, that guy's really successful, but I've struggled a lot. And so, and I think that's the human experience and if we're all more open about that. We'll all be better off. Um, but I'm to answer the, the real question. I'm, I'm super excited about the role of technology uh, with regards to human happiness and wellness, because I think we've used, we all have computers right in our pocket. Now the cell, the cell phone and it's a um, really powerful tool. And we have built this first generation of apps that have basically used having this like always on tool that a uh, computer in your pocket to like almost optimize for like the company's benefit, right? Like take advantage of, of, of you in a way. I mean, they're providing you something, but they're maybe providing you empty caloric food. Right. And, and it's like, uh, so you have these, um, apps where they're very addictive. They, you know, are designed to pull you in. Uh, whether they're apps or games or, or shopping experiences or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm, I think it's questionable whether they're delivering long-term value. But I do think that there's a possibility to use this powerful device to give people much more, you know, I would say uh, high-density caloric food, right? Like something that's valuable to them in the long-term. Mm -hmm. And we just haven't really been focused on it. So um, I think Headspace and, and Calm, you know, very simple apps, but are really great examples of like how you can provide a lot of difference or like create a lot of difference in people's lives uh, if you just start thinking along a different vector. So, and obviously, you know, they've done it in a very profitable way, which is awesome. But, you know, so you have those apps, you have companies like Noom, which is a great example of, of, of a company, you know, focused on wellness and doing something different for people. And I, I just think there's much more to come. I've been working on, on one with uh, some friends of mine I don't even think of it as a startup. It's just more of like a personal project uh, called Kin, but it's basically like a social habit tracker because um, one of the things 
that really helped me with my journey was to be um, able to learn a lot about habit formation and then to be able to use some of the psychological tricks of that maybe empower uh, various types of, you know, uh, tech companies like that, you know, the Facebooks and Twitter to like um, trick myself into doing things that I wanted to do in the long term. So one example is like creating social proof for myself. And like, I would say, oh, I'm going to quit drinking or I'm going to meditate. I'm a meditator. I'd say publicly. And then I'm, I kind of like have to do it. Otherwise I feel like a hypocrite. Right. Or um, I started using like the streak psychology um, to keep myself on, on doing, um, you know, whatever I wanted to do. So like one example is I work out every day. I've worked out every day for the last almost two years now. And I just have a really low minimum bar. It's like, if it, I do something for five minutes, that's physical, then I count it. Right. But uh, now it's like, if I break that streak, you know, that uh, whatever it's, you know, 500 days or something like that. If I break the streak, I'll never work out again. It's, it's game over. So I like have to do it every day. Right. And that was kind of like a, a way to keep me uh, motivated. And so, um, you know, we designed this app and you can check it out at the, on the app store. It's called, it's at kinapp.co. And uh, we designed this app as a way to like create some of these social reinforcement mechanisms for positive habit loops um, so that, you know, people would be more empowered to, to develop and maintain their healthy habits that they want in their lives. And I think that's just one example, but there's, there's a lot of ways that people can use technology to um, better uh, humanity if they, if we, if we're focused on that vector. Yeah, that sounds great. And a lot of people, you already kind of touched on it, but a lot of people were also asking, you know, what industries and, and verticals and channels do you, you know, find the most exciting and, and innovative right now? And, and I think you touched on it. Is there any other like places that you've kind of been looking into future facing um, that have a lot of, uh, you know, opportunity? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, in terms of like, so I started this new investment fund and like the different areas that we look at, I mean, we're pretty broad, but uh, some areas that I think are really interesting are robotics and automation. So, you know, we've, especially during coronavirus, it's accelerated a lot of adoption of, you know, autonomy um, or like various robotics for industry uh, to reduce headcount um, in, at, you know, in at job sites and, and factories and warehouses. Uh, so I think that's an interesting area to in invest, um, digital health and wellness. Uh, so digital, I, I, I incubated this company called Alto. It's a digital pharmacy company. Um, and I just think there's a lot of opportunity to like do healthcare differently, uh, especially now that, you know, we're moving to, towards telemedicine and, uh, you know, a lot of digital delivery of healthcare. Um, so that's one area that's, that's also interesting. And then e-commerce, I think, I think there's still like a lot of opportunity in e-commerce, um, and, and we've just scratched the surface on how people want to buy things and interact with shopping experiences. And then uh, decarbonization is, is an area that I think is really top of mind for people. And uh, you're starting to see companies that are really successful by building really strong consumer brands where the consumers aren't sacrificing something, you know, so that, that could be something like Impossible Foods or it could be Tesla. But I think there's, you know, by appealing to, to people on a different um kind of uh, with a different brand that's, that's environmentally focused, like people that's resonates with the market right now. And uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Cool. Another question from the audience, how much of a factor is luck or perfect timing when you're building a startup or, or business and, and more specifically in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is luck, right? There's a huge amount of luck. I mean, I was incredibly lucky to you. 
start the company with the right co-founders and, and uh, be supported by great investors and like randomly meet these great investors who supported us. And then, um, you know, have users who are like, you should pivot to gaming and like see that as like a viable option. So, I mean, there's incredible luck. And then there was also hard work, right? Because we put ourselves, we did the hard work to put ourselves in the position to be successful. It's kind of like, it's hard to disaggregate oh, what percentage was luck, what percentage is hard work. It's like hard work was the prerequisite to be in the position where you can get lucky. And lucky and, and, and good timing is, is generally not accidental too. I mean, I, it, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of, you know, the ideas that you're mentioning kind of came up out of a need or a function or, you know, feedback that you received or whatever it may be. So timing is not, I feel like just timing. There's a little bit more kind of planning and assessment to it. Right. Yeah. I think there is, you know, you have a hypothesis and we were right, which is lucky in a way on the timing. Um, <laughs> Because who knew gaming was going to blow up like that, or watching gaming was going to be the you know the thing then. But um, we did, you know, there was like an educated guess. Right? It's a little bit of both. And then if it doesn't work, it's just a, another one that didn't work. And and these yeah, were... and there were lots and lots yeah. of times I wasn't lucky and it didn't work. You know, <laughs> um, this one's really fun. This is from Ed. What are your thoughts on the metaverse and? And I think the I think the question is like, does it as a concept of of shared space have a role outside of of gaming and esports? I think so. I mean, I you know you started to see stuff like this where it's like whether it's Travis Scott's concert in Fortnite or you know events like like that. Or I went to one. I did a commencement speech, like a virtual commencement speech for Berkeley that was like held on Minecraft, like a Minecraft server, and so I, I do think there's something interesting about, you know, these shared spaces or like kind of like a physical space in, in the digital realm. Um, I don't really know how it manifests in, you know, how it like becomes ubiquitous. Like it seems like there's all these different metaverses that are being created. Like a lot of people are trying to create the work metaverse, right? So that people can, you know, kind of go close to their coworkers and talk to them and then go further away and, and work. And maybe that will work, maybe not. But, um, there's a lot of interest in creating it. I, I wonder how they're all, if there's ever a like unification or maybe it looks more like websites on the internet, you know, where there's just like a lot of different types of metaverses or maybe the metaverse is a, a, a collection of many universes. I can't tell if it's like terrifying or kind of exciting, but yeah. I think it's, I don't know. I think it's, um, since I started like focusing more on wellness and like in, in, intrinsic satisfaction, I think my interest in the uh, getting fulfillment from the, uh, you know, the outside world has like gone down a lot. And I think that a lot of social media and social interactions that are facilitated by on, like online things are more about sucking you in. And maybe, you know, it's kind of like Twitch. It's like, that's like, it's entertaining but I don't know if it's like a sufficient substitute for real human connection. Mm -hmm. hope, yeah. I hope we're not moving towards a world metaverse only world, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see. Exactly. 2020 feels like the closest version of that. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of questions just around general like experience, um, obviously in, in all your different startups that you've been involved in. One of them was what advice do you have for startups that are starting to scale around building the right team? And, and you know, how, how has your approach to recruitment maybe evolved over, over your experiences? Um, well, I mean, I guess you want to build 
the best team you can, right? So that's probably obvious. Uh, I think that the best way to you, for me, I guess my approach to recruitment has been to become more selective over time and to like probably create more infrastructure of a recruitment, which is, you know, hiring a recruiter more early on, um, not just sat, settling for like one of the three candidates who apply, but maybe like doing a lot more sourcing up front. I mean, I, I feel like it's, none of this is like rocket science, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, the people that you bring in are super important. I mean, another thing I, I, I guess I'll say is like, I think you want to recruit startup people in the beginning, not like big company people. And I think that uh, maybe at my last startup, I, I recruited too many like big company people when the company was too early. And so there is like an attitude shift that's like pretty important between like the founder, you know, kind of early employee or founder mentality versus like later stage company people. And um, I, I do think you're, you know, best served by recruiting the right people for the right stage of your company. Not just skill set wise, but like kind of attitude wise. Right. That makes sense. Um, another one about your experience. Um, what, what kind of experiences have you had or advice to give around co-founders divorces? I, I don't know if any of yours have been, uh, you know, too terrible. Um, but what did you learn in any of those experiences of, of parting ways, I guess is the question. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of, well, I've had some, somewhat, you know, some of the companies didn't result in co-founder divorces and some of them did. I mean, I think it's really, really important to start companies with people with the same values as you. And the times that I, it didn't work out, I think that that was kind of like a core, uh, you know, problem where we didn't have the same values or we didn't have the same expectations on like what the company was going to be about. And so I, I encourage you to spend a lot of time focusing on that and like figuring that out first and doing that work up front. Um, cause that's kind of like the most important thing to keeping your relationship alive, you know, like a regular relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, this next one's from Will. First he said, thank you for taking the time. And then he asked, could you tell us more about goat and what verticals and regions you typically look at? Yeah. Well, I mean, talked about some of the regions, uh, like healthcare and, and e-commerce and robotics and automation decarbonization. So, you know, some of the areas we're looking at. And then uh, in terms of regions, you know, most of it is based in the U.S. Uh, we're primarily investing in U.S. companies. We, we will occasionally invest in companies outside the U.S., um, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis. And really, it's at the seed stage. You know, we're investing, you know, roughly a, a bell curve around a million-dollar check size and uh, also incubating our own startups. I guess it's kind of like Betaworks was doing where, we're, you know, where you have ideas and uh, kind of spinning up teams to, to run with them. All right, this one is from, sorry, I have terrible vision. This one is from Brian. What was the most difficult point you've experienced as an entrepreneur and how did you kind of work your way through it? Not a, not a light question. <laughs> uh, the most difficult point I experienced as an entrepreneur and how did I work my way through it? Um, I mean, there were a lot of like, what's the most difficult one? I mean, I wanted to quit Justin TV and Twitch almost every year. And for a variety of reasons, like either it wasn't working or it wasn't growing or I was burned out or we we're getting sued or what, whatever, you know? And, and um, I think what helped me get through it was really having co-founders where I had people to rely on and lean on who were kind of there in the trenches with me. I think without the co-founders, I would never, have, you know, would never have stayed. 
Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's one, you know, one thing. I don't know if there were any specific moments where I was like, "This is the most difficult point I've ever had." Um, you know, there were just a lot of difficult things. You know, the site would go down, or like we like we would get sued, or like a you know with Atrium, I laid off 180 people in January, so or February. So you know, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's all it's mostly. You know, it starts out this giant roller coaster, but I can't really pinpoint like this is like the worst moment. That's good. It's just a little, it's like life. There's always little yeah. things that build. And then depending on the time and the situation, some are worse. All right. This one's from Gabriella. Um, and I think this was uh, in reference to our conversation a little bit earlier when we were talking about uh, always moving the goalpost. She asked, do you think that this never satisfied attitude is actually what helped you in the beginning? And is it possible that it was necessary at the beginning, but perhaps as you kind of experienced your, uh, you know, companies and, and entrepreneurship a little bit more, you, you didn't need it to be so strict and rigid. Uh, so that, I mean, that's a good point because, you know, the attitude of like really needing to survive, to succeed and, and sur survive and really having your ego tied up into it, you know, in a way that serves, serve me and it probably, you know, you, if you are a founder, it may serve you, um, in a way. And what I mean is like, obviously I was highly motivated to succeed. I spent all my time doing it. I thought about it all the time. And I was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. Or I'm thinking it's, it's going to be really, really bad. And so, um, you know, in a way it did serve me because I did become quite successful. Um, at the same time, I do think that there were like limiting factor or like parts of it, which were, uh, you know, because I was so stressed about it all the time, I was constantly burned out. And I was like constantly looking for ways to get out of my feelings of dissatisfaction. So for a long time, that was like a drink heavily. You know, get super fucked up or like uh, I'd fantasize about quitting the startup like like I was saying or um, eventually when it came to uh, you know when it, there was a moment where right around when we were selling where I had decided to like leave I was still on the board of, of Twitch and we're you know the company's growing okay but I was like I need to do something bigger so I wanted I left and started a new company and in retrospect I think I would have been much better served staying and helping maybe just on, even if I just helped on the fundraising side, that was kind of my strength and Emmett could have continued working on the product, et cetera. Um, because, but, but it was like dissatisfaction that, that drove me to, to leave actually prematurely. And obviously the company now is like really big and you know, much bigger than when, when uh, we sold it to Amazon. So I do think that there, you know, it did serve me in some ways and I think it didn't serve me in other ways. And I'm not ready to say, you know, you have to be tortured in order to be successful. Sometimes you can't help it. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone has their own journey, right? Most people start off tortured and, and they're like, you know, needing, having some big drive to like do something in the world and be somebody. And that's not bad. That's just part of the human experience. And then eventually, you know, maybe they get that thing and they wake up and they're like, oh, that didn't really result in the change in the world that I thought it thought it would and maybe there's something different. Fair point. Um, this is actually one of my favorite questions. Um, if you could have started another startup or product that you did not get involved with, what would it be? If you had to choose Facebook. another? No, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, I, I, I guess, I mean, I would have like, okay, which one would I pick? Because I'd be proud of like starting it. It'd probably be like Calm. Yeah. Or, or, um, or Headspace or something like that. Like, 
I, I don't, uh, I think that those, you know, I feel like those apps have made such a big difference in my life. And um, that would, those, that would be an area where I'm like, oh, that would be something I'd be really proud of. Good answer. It's also like the simplicity of using technology to do something that it wasn't yeah. used for is, is yeah. uncreated. Um, so other than GOAT, is there anything else that you're working on or building? Like what's, what's next? No, I'm, I'm you know, GOAT, that's my full-time job and that's kind of what I'm working on. And then I, you know, I do have this uh, app that's mostly for my own use that you guys can check out called Kin uh, that I'm, I'm pretty stoked about just because I like using it, you know, um, but that's, that's it really. I feel like the best products are ones that you just, it's just, you use it, you like it, you use it, you see the value. It can yeah. be that simple. Yep. All right. And Julie asked, how has being Asian or I guess just your race in general, either advantaged or disadvantaged you? Do you feel like it has and, and how? Um, Well, I would say that, like, I guess, you know, my parents had, and this isn't necessarily about being Asian. I think it is about having a mom who was an immigrant. You know, she was Chinese. She's ethnically Chinese. Ethnically, I'm Chinese. And my mom immigrated from, first she was born in China and then went to Hong Kong and then moved to Malaysia when she was a kid and then went from Malaysia to uh, America when she was 17. And so having a mom who was an immigrant, you know, she had this need to, she had a scarcity mindset and she was like, had this need to, to achieve. And that was like one of the things that both created a lot of self-torture in me, that attitude, but on also was obviously helped me be successful. Right. So she was kind of a tiger mom in some ways, but she was like, Oh, you know, you got to do things well. And, um, that was very important to her. And I think that did, you know, I got a lot of quantitative and qualitative skills from, her example and she was an entrepreneur as well so so my parents did have a very formative part in like helping me get the skills and kind of temperament to be an entrepreneur you know it also resulted in a lot of like i would say struggling but um uh, i am thankful for that and so i mean does that have anything to do with being asian i think culturally like there is a component where like asian people are like you know want you to, you know are really de devoted to their kids doing well and so maybe that that's a factor, but, you know, in terms of like the, I guess, relation, my race as re it relates to like my interactions with the workplace, once I wasn't, you know, a, um, an adult, like, I don't, I don't really feel, I didn't feel it. Like, I don't, I mean, I never felt like being Asian was a hindrance or a help, you know, in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Just didn't define who you were. Didn't, didn't, you know, it's never really defined why. Who I am, which I guess is not like fashionable to say now in today's society, but like I never like when I was in school or whatever, I never felt like oh I'm defined. You know, a Asian is like a core part of my identity. I always felt like it was like oh I'm Justin, you know, and I'm like someone who's interested in new ideas and I'm you know interested in sports or, or whatever. You know, yeah. like I was, I didn't felt like Asian was like one of the top three adjectives that I would like put on myself. You know, yeah. And I think that's that's different from now where people there's a lot more like identity around kind of the immutable characteristics that people have. I don't, I don't know if that's great, but yeah. No, that's fair. That's your experience. Yeah. Um, totally, totally separate topic. This is from Jensen. He asked, will Hollywood accept streamers slash YouTubers 
foray into, I think more so like mainstream film production, et cetera. Um, and was, sorry, I'm reading as I go. You know, I think his question here is you have athletes, you have esports, you have sports. These worlds are melding together. They're happening on the entertainment side, on the sports side. Is, is there a world in which they kind of become one shared space and, and you know, or will they always kind of be these separate digital and, and kind of traditional worlds as we know it? Well, I, I think there's probably two answers to that. I think, I think one thing that is mutable, right, that is transferable between these different platforms is fame or like maybe it's, uh, I don't know, like fame or maybe it's like the relationship between, you know, the person, the, the content creator and the content, um, you know, consumer. And so uh, I do think that there's like, you're seeing people translate their fan bases across platforms. And that is, you know, it goes back to the very first thing about Justin TV, where I really thought that you could create, make someone famous by like just streaming their life on the internet because there was this like way to, that people would be interested in person. I saw like celebrity and like people are interested in personalities and people, um, you know, not just like if I'm a movie star and Brad Pitt or something, not just watching my movies, but also in like the ta like information that comes out in tabloids and my personal relationships and like me being in advertisements to promote a product or whatever. And so I, I think that is happening just in many more dimensions now on the, on the internet, right? So the same person who is a athlete can also, you know, make content on, you know, and tweet and make content on Instagram. And it's almost like required, right. That everyone like be in, on Instagram and stuff now. And so um, I, I think that uh, you are seeing translation of that fame across all these different platforms. Now, obviously like some platforms have like require different skills, right? Like the skill that you need to be popular on TikTok and the skill you need to be popular on Instagram or the skill you need to be popular on Twitter are all very different. Right. So you are seeing, you will see people gravitate towards one platform or another, but I do think there's like something translatable between them. Right. It's like the different ways that, that celebrities in whatever sense of the word show up on each of the platforms. Also, I, it seems like speaks to this like dichotomy that's happening right now from traditional celebrity and, and mainstream media with this kind of new personal slice of life, Instagram stories. You're here with me all day, every day. Um, more, I guess, like less curated version of celebrities. So I feel like we're still in the world where people want different things from their celebrities, but they want both of it. They want the, the glitz and the fame and the movies and the Hollywood, but they also want the behind the scenes weird time yeah. to be alive. <laughs> it, is, it is. And not every platform is good for every person. You know, you gotta kind of have to find the things that resonate with you. Mm -hmm. um, one more question from Terrence, and I will just summarize it. Do you still kind of have, um, you know, forward-facing thoughts in the legal sector and how technology can have a place there? And, and if so, like, what, what is your kind of perspective on that? I mean, the legal sector sucks. Don't do it. <laughs> was that the whole, was that the whole perspective? That's, that's my perspective. It's okay. terrible. I mean, well, okay, I'll give you a more nuanced answer, which is, there's an intrinsic reason why people like law firms don't want to adopt technology because they have an agency problem where they're like, because they're charging you on an hourly basis, anything that becomes makes them more efficient is actually like a revenue decreaser. Mm -hmm. There's like very perverse incentives not to like be technology forward. So, you know, selling to law firms sucks. I mean, you can build a business selling to corporate legal departments. Is that what you want to spend your time doing? I don't. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, cool. Let's see what else we've got. 
Um, this one asks a little bit about um, kind of fundraising. After raising the seed round, how, for how long, I guess in your perspective, should I keep developing my service before releasing it to the public? And this might be a little bit of a nuanced answer, but. Uh, well, you know, I, before the traditional YC answer would have been like, just launch it and get it out there. Um, I do think that there is a little bit too much cargo culting and startups around like getting growth as fast as possible and not working enough on making a really high quality product. And you're starting to see companies that spend a lot of time working on a product and in obscurity, and then it starts to accelerate a lot because it's just a really great product. So Notion is probably a great example of that, uh, or something like Mercury, this banking startup for startups that um, I'm an investor in, but the, these guys, you know, they, they worked on it for two years before they released it, and then they launched it, and it's, now it's really good, and, it's grow, and it grows. So I'm, I, I think there is, you know, there's not really an easy answer, but I definitely think that it's, you know, in order to become a really, really big company, you need to build something that's actually good, like really good, 10x better than what's out, some, what's out there on some axis. And so uh, you should probably be working on your product until you like get that. Now, sometimes you need to like get customer feedback to make it that good. And so there is something to be said about like launching it and getting, you know, if you need to, to get some, start getting the ball rolling on customers so you can get that feedback. But I think a lot of times people launched it and then they're like, oh, my product's done. Now I'm just going to work on growth hacking and like making content, you know, marketing or whatever. And that's like the, not necessarily the right thing to do. You know? Scale, scale it. Scaled approach. That makes sense. Yeah, balanced approach. All right, we got one more from the audience. Mar Mariana, I hope I pronounced that correctly. What are your favorite books and how did they shape you in your entrepreneurial journey? My favorite book is this book called Shogun and it's by James Clavell, an amazing author. It tells the story of this, uh, He's not a captain, but he's like an officer of a uh, Dutch ship that was shipwrecked in Japan in 1600. And um, the book is like an adventure story. So it goes through like how he interacts with like all the feudal lords in Japan. And eventually one of them kind of takes over and becomes shogun and over the course of the book. And uh, how it interacts with startups is that it, I learned a lot of lessons from just like how the characters in the book uh, deal with their problems and their like circumstances. And one of the characters, the main, one of the main characters, he's this feudal Lord in Japan. And he, um, he always delays, like if he doesn't have to make a decision in a difficult, a difficult decision, then he doesn't make any decision. And so it'll just delay, 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 delay. And, and that has actually served me very well in my career. Delaying a hard decision. Yeah, if you don't have like, because sometimes you get more information, right? Like, or sometimes things kind of reveal themselves as they should be. And so oftentimes we're like, oh, we have to make a decision right now. But, but if you don't have to make the decision and it's a difficult decision for you, then maybe you don't, don't make it. Just see what happens. Wait until it's an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, Easy one. What might be the future of human interactions in the next 10 years? Um, what part of the so-called digital human, what, what part of it, what's the future of human interaction? That's the simple, simple question. Yeah. I mean, I think, so one of my friends, uh, Max Hodak is working on something called Neuralink and uh, it's, you know, a brain inter computer interface. And I think that 
to me, it's very obvious that eventually we will have brain computer interfaces. I don't know if it's going to happen in the next 10 years, but it's probably going to happen in the next couple decades. And um, I think that's going to unlock a lot of potential powers for humanity, but also like a, a lot of potential downsides, you know, but you know, it's kind of like phones. Like I think phones are great in a lot of ways, but also have like the potential to be very addictive for people. But regardless of what I think and what I say and how I moralize it, it doesn't matter because like everyone's got a phone, they're not going away. Even though I say that, you know, I still have a phone and I still use it all the time. So I think brain computer interfaces are going to be the same way where everyone's going to have a brain computer interface and hopefully we create them in such ways that they're, you know, high security, obviously, but also, also like not super addictive. Like we're not just like off in our own heads, like looking at Reddit all the time. But I think that the feedback cycle between, you know, thought and information retrieval is going to be so fast that it's going to enable um, just amazing transformational human experiences. Interesting. We're very close. I feel it. All right. I think this is our last one. Then I see you pushing us along. Do you have any advice for building products um, in uncharted waters? And, and I'd say more generally, you know, obviously Twitch is what we all know it now, but when it started, there was no way to know exactly what would happen in 10 years. I think what general advice for, for not knowing exactly what the landscape or, or future holds uh, to, to the startups and entrepreneurs in the audience. Yeah, I think this, this question is great because, you know, all the big companies that exist today were building into uncharted waters, like all the me too companies, you might make a company that's worth, I don't know, a hundred million dollars or something like that by like kind of taking something that worked in some one space and then putting it in another space, or it could even be worth like a billion dollars. But if you want to make a company that's like really world changing and you have to, it has to start from somewhere where it's like, where it's completely out of the box and, and new. So, you know, you have to have faith that it's going to be something that people want. And then, you know, really you, that's why so many of these things are like driven by product driven founders where they have a vision for how the product's going to work and they're confident in it. And they just say, fuck it, this is what I'm going to do regardless of like how people are going to receive it at first. And then some of the time they're right and they make something really big and some of the time they're wrong, you know, so it is a much riskier way to approach things, but that's how the best, you know, kind of world changing things happen. Right. The uncharted, wa uncharted waters are kind of what you need to make that, you know, groundbreaking product or, or idea. Yeah, right. sure. Amazing. Thank you. I think we're out of time. Ben is tapping us in, I think, from the car now. Hi, guys. Yeah, I uh, had, to, had to mobilize at the very end here. Um, Justin, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really, really appreciate your candor. Um, you're clearly just a very... Um, honest and, and direct person. I, I think everyone's appreciated this dialogue. So thank you so much. Um, and